Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious and for medical students. Today's episode, to breathe or not to breathe. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, a senior lecturer in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional, nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Are you taking a deep breath? Today's episode will focus on thunderstorm asthma. There's been a lot of coverage in the media about thunderstorm asthma, so today we'll be discussing some of the anatomy and pharmacology about breathing and asthma. I'm joined by a great team to illustrate that. Could everyone introduce themselves? I'm Jane Burke, and I'm a pharmacologist, and I do medical research focused on new drugs for difficult-to-treat asthma. Hi, my name's Georgina Stevens. I'm a doctor, and I also teach medical students here at Monash. And my name's Jonathan. I'm a final-year medical student. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today on the podcast. We're going to start with some of the basics and outline some of the key anatomical and pharmacological concepts which underpin asthma. Asthma is an extremely common condition affecting well over 2 million Australians. It can cause difficulty with breathing. In fact, the name asthma comes from the Greek word as in, which means breathe hard. So it affects the airways and the respiratory system. Michelle, could you run us through some of the basic anatomy of the respiratory system? So it's important to remember that the airway has two parts. It's got an upper and a lower portion to it. The upper portion, which includes the oral and nasal cavities, connects with the outside world. The oral cavity in particular is very interesting because in addition to getting air through that pathway, you can also take in food. So you can chew something, swallow it, goes down to the stomach, or you can breathe in and it goes to the lower respiratory portion, the lungs. Embryologically, this dual function of the oral cavity is because they shared a common origin, specifically off the gut tube. So the lungs actually develop from the digestive system. This proximity of these two systems is relevant to our topic today as well, because sometimes if you have digestive problems, it can impact your asthma. Specifically, if you have acid reflux disease or GORD, that can worsen asthma by some of that acid dropping into your lungs. And histologically, the pathways are similar as well. If we're just focusing on the respiratory component, the system focuses on getting air and oxygen in particular in and foreign objects or everything else out, keeping it away from the lungs and the upper and lower respiratory system. And there are built-in parts along the upper respiratory system all the way down through the lower respiratory system that help protect it, including tonsils, which I'm sure you've heard of with tonsillitis. They have lymph tissue that helps prevent foreign objects from going further. Additionally, as we progressively go down the respiratory system, we have cilia. Cilia are hair-like projections that sort of sweep foreign objects or germs away from the lungs. And mucus is sticky substance that helps trap germs or foreign objects, preventing them also from going into the bloodstream. So mucus sounds like it's a really good thing to have in your airways because it's trapping these foreign objects or or germs. 
But in a way, the inflammation that happens in asthma means that you, your cells that are lining your airways produce excessive amounts of mucus. And that can actually narrow your airways and make it more difficult to breathe. It can actually also impact on drugs getting through that mucus to the airways where they need to work. So mucus, depending on what is coming in, could be beneficial or it could be bad. Ultimately, the goal of the respiratory system is to bring oxygen from the external world into the most distal location of the lungs, known as alveoli. So just to clarify, distal means further away, or in this case, deeper. Correct. Around the alveoli is a very rich blood supply where the oxygen from the lungs can dissolve or cross into the blood capillaries. If you think of a soft drink, a soft drink is a liquid that has bubbles encased in it, and it's very similar at the location between the capillaries or the blood supply and the alveoli. Oxygen is dissolved in the blood, and we know where the air goes, but what parts are involved in the process of breathing itself? We think about breathing as though you were visiting your doctor and they had their stethoscope. They ask you to breathe in and breathe out. The breathing in part we refer to inspiration. The breathing out part is what's known as exhalation. Although they're both different functions, from an anatomical point of view, there's only one that requires significant input of muscular supply, specifically the inspiration, the breathing in. So if everybody listening to the podcast takes a deep breath and feels their abdomen or your stomach, you'll actually feel your stomach expand. And so what's happening is that this huge muscle between the rib cage, the thoracic cage, and the abdomen is the diaphragm. The diaphragm is something that we can consciously control. When I say take a deep breath, you take a deep breath. And when it contracts, it moves downward, increasing the pressure in the abdomen, causing it to distend or extend outwards, which is what you felt during your breathing. While the thoracic cage, the pressure decreases. This forces air in. When your diaphragm relaxes, that is actually this passive event is what forces air out. So inspiration, that deep breath in, increases abdominal pressure, decreases thoracic pressure, and is an active diaphragmatic muscular event. Exhalation, relaxation, or breathing out, is a passive event. The diaphragm, in essence, contracts and then creates a vacuum in the rib cage. Is that right? So what happens is, is you have this negative pressure and then the air rushes into your lungs as opposed to, I guess, you might think about it as actively sucking air in. What's actually happening is that this vacuum is allowing for air to enter the lungs. Exactly. The only active part is contraction of the skeletal muscle of the diaphragm through innervation with the phrenic nerve. And there are some other muscles as well, from what I understand, that can also assist in breathing, particularly when you're out of breath after doing some exercise. Any muscle that sort of attaches to your rib cage, those bony structures, there's muscles between them. Those intercostals, so costal it refers to a rib. It's a scientific word for rib. Intercostal means muscles between ribs. Those actually help expand and contract your rib cage. In addition, up by your neck, if you tense your neck, there's some muscles called scalene muscles, and those can also help if you're really struggling with breathing. You'll notice your neck will become very tense, and you'll engage those to help lift and expand that rib cage to, again, increase the capacity of that vacuum. 
So in someone having a severe asthma attack, you might be able to see those muscles contracting and doing extra work to help someone breathe. Exactly. So what we've learned to this point in the podcast is that there are two portions to the airway. There's an upper and lower airway. And that maintaining its patency or openness is critical to its function. Anything that can cause that patency or openness to decrease will cause difficulty with gaining oxygen. And that's the case that we're going to see with asthma. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. When we think of asthma, it's important to consider that it's quite a complicated disease with both an acute and chronic aspect, so a short term and a long term. But even before someone gets their first asthma attack, they might be predisposed to getting one in the first place. So what are some of the risk factors that might contribute to developing asthma? So the big ones are having a family history of asthma, but also other what are known as atopic conditions such as eczema and allergic rhinitis. So they're both allergic conditions, eczema and rhinitis, but I know also that there's an increased incidence of asthma associated with increased levels of obesity. The other thing that has been shown to increase the risk of asthma is exposure to tobacco smoke as an infant or indeed having your mother smoked tobacco when you were in utero. What is it exactly that would trigger someone to have indeed their first asthma attack or subsequent asthma attacks? Triggers include things in the environment such as cigarette smoke, pet hair and pollen or even cold weather. People often find that exercise may trigger their asthma or having a viral illness. Once an asthma attack is triggered, what happens to the person undergoing that attack in the acute stage? I'm going to break this up into symptoms and signs. Symptoms are things that a patient experiences. Signs are things that a doctor might look for when examining someone who they're worried might be having an asthma attack. So the symptoms include coughing, shortness of breath, which your doctor might refer to as dyspnea. You also might experience a a tightness in your chest. You might be able to even hear a wheeze, which is a high-pitched, almost whistling sound that you make as you're trying to breathe. In terms of signs, your doctor will listen for a wheeze, and they might do that using their stethoscope, listening to your chest. They will check how many breaths you're taking per minute, also known as the respiratory rate. And they'll also look for things like we mentioned before, like the use of accessory muscles that show that you're trying to work a lot harder to breathe. How do these symptoms and signs relate to the underlying disease mechanism that's occurring? Well, it's really well known that even in early stages of asthma, the structure of the airways is changed. So these airways now have a thicker layer of muscle around them, and that means that they contract more easily and too much when they are exposed to one of these uh, triggers. The signs that you see are mostly related to things that are happening in the lower airways because the upper airways are protected from narrowing because they have a cartilage ring that is around most of the airway. The lower airway, where the muscle surrounds the airway completely, is really the site where the obstruction to airflow is really happening. So in asthma, people's airways have more muscle, so it contracts more easily. And that muscle becomes more sensitive to those allergens and triggers, so it contracts too easily and too much, which is one of the classic definitions of asthma. Those airways are also inflamed, so they're thicker and they're filled with more mucus. And all of these things combine together to make it harder to breathe and for the air to get down to the alveoli where we really want that gas exchange to occur. What it sounds like you're describing is a bronchospasm. You've got the smooth muscle contracting to different stimuli, as well as the mucus plugging up the airway even further. What exactly is it about the allergic process that contributes to that? 
Well, it's not actually the pollen that's causing your airway to contract. It's the fact that you've been exposed to that previously, which means that your body is prepared to release uh, mediators that cause the airway to contract. And that re-exposure to that allergen, often pollen, causes what we call a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. So in the airways of asthmatics, there's increased numbers of mast cells that contain a whole lot of mediators that can cause your airways to contract. And those mediators can also drive the inflammatory process as well. So we have this airway that's contracting more and it's swollen and filled with mucus. So that whole combination really sets up the bronchospasm as you've just described. That's the acute asthma attack. What happens once you've settled down and you're breathing a little bit better? Are you over the asthma attack or not yet? Well, there's really both acute and chronic phases of an asthma attack. So that acute phase is the bronchoconstriction where your airways are narrowing and you get this spasm of your airways. But there's also a movement of inflammatory cells into your lungs that occurs in response to some of the same mediators that cause contraction. And those inflammatory cells mean that your airways remain swollen and mucus filled for some time after an asthma attack. That's why it might be important to visit your doctor if you've had a bad asthma attack that you've resolved at home. Yeah, because asthma is actually by definition a chronic inflammatory lung disease. So while we might be able to treat the symptoms, the difficulty in breathing, we also need to try and keep that chronic inflammation under control with other sorts of drugs. So what we've learned is that it's critical to keep the airway patent or open, and the upper airway has cartilage, which helps it maintain its patency. The lower airway has smooth muscle that either contracts or relaxes to control this airway. But in asthma, when things go wrong, you close off this airway, either through swelling or spasms of this muscle or mucus invasion. Often, it's a combination of all of these different events together that lead to complications related to asthma. In all of these cases, we are limiting the amount of space available for airway patency. But it's clear that there are big implications in both the short and long term. So what are some of the ways that we can manage asthma? The first thing to do is minimize or remove the triggers for that person's asthma that we mentioned. So that might include quitting smoking or not going outdoors when there's lots of pollen in the air. In terms of medication, we divide these into two groups, being relievers and preventers. Relievers are inhaled medications that act quickly to relieve the symptoms of an asthma attack. The most common one of these is selbutamol, also known as Ventolin. Ventolin is uh, a drug that's a member of a class of drugs called short-acting beta agonists. And they're called beta agonists because they work on the receptors that adrenaline works on during your fight or flight response to open up your airways, making it easier for you to breathe. People with very occasional asthma symptoms can get away with using relievers as their only medication. But the vast majority of people need the preventer medications as well. The most common preventer medication used is an inhaled corticosteroid. Depending on the severity of asthma symptoms this might then need to be increased or additional drugs added to adequately control the asthma. Additional drugs that might be added would include long-acting beta agonists such as salmeterol. So the inhaled steroids are really useful, but these are not acting directly on the muscle to oppose contraction. 
And the reason they're preventers is that they don't work for a period of time because they regulate the production of proteins within the body and they oppose inflammation rather than having an acute effect on muscle tone. So they're absolutely no use during an asthma attack. They have to be taken prior to the attack. Because essentially, from an anatomical point of view, during an attack, it's the smooth muscle that's contracting and these are preventing something upstream of those events. Sure, they affect the inflammation. They're absolutely used for treating a number of inflammatory conditions, not just asthma. And so they're going to reduce the swelling in the airways. They're going to reduce the mucus production in the airways. And that actually means that when you take your inhaled short-acting beta agonist, it has much better access to the muscle because it's not trying to fight its way through a thick mucus layer to a swollen airway. So they can enhance the reliever activity. Absolutely. Really, it's important for people to be on these drugs if they do have asthma that's occurring more often. In hospital, sometimes you see people who might say, oh, my asthma's fine, so I decided to stop this medication. And that might be what prompts them to have an asthma attack and then come in. So what you're saying is it's really important to have this baseline of this drug so that you don't get asthma attacks in the first place. Yes, so that's why they're called preventers. But not only are they preventing you having an asthma attack, but if you do have an asthma attack, it's likely to be much less severe so you don't end up in hospital. These medications sound really effective, but as with any medication, I'm sure there are some side effects. Could you talk a bit about that? Well, we're trying to minimise those side effects by taking these drugs via the inhaled routes, which mean we're acting in the lung, and the drugs don't necessarily then cross into the body to have effects on other organs. But if you did take your Ventolin and you took too many puffs, then if that drug does get into the bloodstream, it can act on a different type of beta receptor, a beta-1 receptor, which is on the heart, and make you feel that your heart rate's increasing, and this is a tachycardia. For the steroids, the inhaled corticosteroids, people really worry about taking steroids, and they think that they're going to bulk up like some sort of person on anabolic steroids. But these are a different class of steroids, so they don't have those sort of effects at all. They do have some other effects that might be involved in suppressing the immune system and making you more susceptible to infection. So in fact, if you take an inhaled steroid and you don't use the right technique and it deposits in your mouth rather than going down into your lungs, you're more likely to get infections in your mouth like oral thrush. So really it's important that people learn how to use these medications properly. Part of the treatment of someone with asthma is having an asthma management plan that they write in conjunction with their GP. This is a written document that has instructions for them about what to do with their asthma for when they are well, as well as what to do with their medications when they start to experience symptoms, become unwell, and even when to call triple zero. Another part of asthma management is learning how to use medications effectively. So not only rinsing your mouth out when you use inhaled corticosteroids, but proper techniques of how to use a puffer and or a spacer if your doctor thinks that's appropriate for you. If medications don't seem to be controlling your asthma, some of the things the doctor will check before increasing or adding medications are things like if you are taking your medications as prescribed and if you're able to use a puffer properly. We've talked a lot about asthma. I'm wondering how this all relates to thunderstorm asthma, the case where people who'd never had asthma symptoms before were coming into their doctors with symptoms of asthma. Let's start off by clarifying what thunderstorm asthma actually is. Thunderstorm asthma refers to the onset of acute asthma symptoms during or immediately after a thunderstorm. 
It usually happens in spring or early summer because it works in association with high pollen counts. Basically what happens is pollen, and in this case, ryegrass pollen, gets swept by winds towards the area that's going to be affected. There's lots of moisture in the air. That moisture gets sucked into the pollen granules and they explode and release lots of tiny starch granules, which act as allergens. These are so much smaller than regular pollen grains that it's really easy for them to get deep down into people's lungs and cause an allergic response. So thunderstorm asthma is a combination of not just the thunderstorm, but the pollen and the moisture in the air at the same time. So the thunderstorm asthma event in Victoria was absolutely incredible. It far exceeded all previous reports of thunderstorm asthma. And in fact, there were 13,000 presentations to hospitals in Victoria on that day, and more than 3,000 of these were related to lung problems. This epidemic actually happened on Melbourne's hottest spring day. There was a maximum temperature of 35 degrees and... The northerly winds gave a really high pollen count. So normally a pollen count is classified as extreme if it's over 100 grains per cubic metre. And in fact, on this day, it peaked at almost double that at 191. This outbreak of thunderstorm asthma was associated with a 432% increase in emergency attendances for acute respiratory distress symptoms. And it seems to be a big problem in southeastern Australia because we have so much ryegrass in grazing pastures around here. Further to what you were saying, Michelle, it wasn't just people who'd never had asthma before who were presenting. There were people who had asthma, but that asthma was poorly controlled who were affected, and also people who'd had asthma as kids but thought they'd grown out of it. Is there any difference between thunderstorm asthma and normal asthma? Really, they are exactly the same symptoms, but the problem with thunderstorm asthma is that the airways that are being affected are the smaller airways deep in the lung. And as you can imagine, getting the drugs down to those small airways when they're already narrowed becomes much more difficult than if the allergen trigger is affecting more the middle-sized airways. So the size of the particles in the drugs that we use they are not always going to access down to those very small airways where those pollen particles were causing an allergic response and making the very small airways shut down, essentially. So how would you manage the normal events related to typical asthma versus thunderstorm asthma? Would there be significant differences? I think the main thing is that people who are at risk of thunderstorm asthma have an asthma management plan in place. So the people who are at risk are people already with asthma, but there are also people who have allergic rhinitis or hay fever that's triggered by pollen. So if you're someone who knows that pollen affects you either in terms of asthma or allergic rhinitis, you should have an asthma management plan that you've constructed with your GP as to what to do in times where thunderstorm asthma might occur. Interestingly, the people who were protected from thunderstorm asthma were people who had very well-controlled asthma who were taking their preventer medications. It's really important that people who have asthma or allergic rhinitis are aware of the warnings that are coming out when the pollen counts are high. And these people need to make sure they've got reliever medication with them or if they do have symptoms, they seek help straight away so that their symptoms don't get worse and they end up in emergency And in fact, we ended up with, I think, 10 deaths related to the last thunderstorm asthma epidemic. And that was the worst case that's ever been seen in Australia. So we don't want that to happen again. 
That's all we have time for today. We've covered quite a bit from the anatomy of airways as well as the clinical implications related to asthma. I want to thank my interdisciplinary team today, Jane, Georgina, and Jonathan, and we look forward to our next podcast. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com, for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomists and use the hashtag AnatQ.